Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. As we navigate our way through 2021, we are finally finding out the answer to that eternal question, what does Brexit actually mean? In these next two episodes, we're asking, what does Brexit mean for women and for women's rights? Feminist Activists on Brexit, From the Political to the Personal, is a recently published edited collection that brings together the Brexit experiences of feminist activists from across the UK and asks, are we risking the rollback of women's rights? In this first episode, we talked to four feminist activists about whose voices were left out of the Brexit debate and what that means for the women in those communities. I'm Thomas Amselius. I currently uh, work for Save the Children in Sweden and for Malmö University, but I used to live in Bristol for many, many years and I was a director at SAN. I'm Mushtaq Hussein. I used to be a community development and learning support assistant at SPAN. I left SPAN in 2016, since worked with the University of Bristol and currently at the Bristol City Council. I work in community safety. Tell us a bit about yourselves. How did you get involved in feminist activism and why is it so important to you? So I live in Bristol. I'm kind of an international child, really, born in the Emirates, immigrated to Holland after there was a civil war where my family is from in Somaliland and then migrated to the UK again when I was 15 and ended up in Bristol after I got married quite young and lived here ever since and I'm hoping to stay. (laughs) Initially feminism was something that wasn't speaking to me at all. I was quite angry actually with feminism because it didn't speak to me I felt as a black Muslim female. In my younger days I was always everything I did who I was, who I represented, was completely at odds with feminism. And then I came across the concept of intersectionality, actually. And then I became more interested and I felt that that was really addressing and understanding the aspects of the social factors in my life in terms of my background, race, economic status, etc., etc. So it's become a really important part of my life. And it's almost become really the vehicle that drives my journey into life and helps me make a change in my activism as well. I think it's interesting what Mushtaq is saying because obviously uh, we've known each other for probably about 12 years but I at the time I was working at SPAN and we didn't really talk about ourselves as a feminist organisation as such although obviously SPAN's roots. I think what we were doing was a lot of kind of feminist practice we spoke more about women's rights, spoke more about, you know, kind of empowerment, possibilities for mothers to live, you know, fulfilling lives and to kind of move on in life out of poverty and stuff like that. So for many years, I, I, we didn't really talk about feminism. But if I kind of look back and when I really started to think about my own situation, I think for me, it was more personal. I became a single parent while I was a PhD student. Nothing that I did there was really geared towards women like myself. I had a daughter, I had a family, just things like when they had seminars, when, you know, everything was putting me at a disadvantage. And although there were feminist scholars in the department, the practicality of actually being a single parent. So it was a personal struggle that kind of became political. And then I found Span when my daughter was about one years old. Explain to me about SPAN and what it is. SPAN was an organisation really that was started by and for single parents in the city of Bristol in 1990. And that's when they got funding to set up the Single Parent Action Network. And then over about 25 years, it developed into quite a, a successful, larger grassroots charity that was based in the city of Bristol, but that worked both nationally and, and internationally. But what was unique, I would say, about SPAN was that it was very multicultural. We all came from very different backgrounds. So I was the director of the study centre. SPAN did become sort of like a safe haven for a lot of women in terms of the work we did, the activism we did, the grassroots work we did. It was to really better the lives and quality of life for women and children and young people. So actually, although we didn't recognise it as a feminist organisation, but everything we did was really to benefit that systematic and structural inequality of women. 
And it was done in a very practical way. And now I've since done a PhD where I've kind of looked a lot at theories about feminist social work and other things. And, and I kind of think, sit here always and think that's what we did. We did all of that in practice. And also, I think, because for a lot of the women that we were working with, they couldn't relate to, to those more kind of academic or, you know, notions. And I remember really clearly once, I, me and Suad, one of our colleagues, we were invited to a university to talk with feminist scholars. And we couldn't really meet each other because of our different ways of looking at things. Can you tell me a bit about how the Brexit referendum othered these parts of society what were the kind of the consequences oh gosh it was very surreal I mean I mentioned in the chapter that it was sort of like a license to go and hate everything that people had the inherited racist views and the subtle racism that we know the UK to be for that to just come out in the open now actually we voted them out now so you can say whatever you know you want to say a very dark day for a lot of people but a you know, and a very happy day for a lot of people as well. It was how do those two worlds and those, how do they collide? So it became very polarised. We couldn't even digest what it was. What did it mean to a lot of people who were sold as, you know, we want anti-immigration policies, we want immigrants out. And so they voted for that. It was really surreal in London. I was in London. Coming back to Bristol, I went to Tesco's shopping and people were looking at me all funny and odd and I didn't want to go outside. I was really scared. I was worried for the children to go to school. A lot of other BME communities that I know and other ethnic minority communities in the UK felt the same way. There was no support in place. There were no agencies responding. There was no, you know, and hate crime, as we know, the figures went sky high. We all knew what the debate was about, but there was nobody to support us and to say, well, actually, we're going to make sure that no minority communities or ethnic minorities are harmed. And so that whole discourse continued around immigrants out. We finally got what we wanted. So it became the win and the loose team. And that whole polarization continued. And there's a whole community in the middle that are impacted intercultural families or partners who are from other European countries or outside of the Europe. It was really, really horrible. It was awful. Yeah, I think also there was a lot of kind of practical issues with transnational families. So we have different citizenships. I know Mushtaq's family, that's the case. And children that were born in the UK, but they have you know, a Dutch passport or they have a Swedish passport. People who had first been refugees in one country, then they you know, got a European citizenship, then they migrated to and all the, the difficulties in, in getting settled status and especially for women. So women that haven't worked, for example, to just prove that you're actually eligible to, to live in the UK. There was a lot of kind of local or community-based support, but it was really grassroots. My daughter was born in the UK. She feels British, but she can't, she can't go and study there because she doesn't have the passport, but my son does. So half of my family is British and half of us are not. And I can't come back either because I'm not, you know, there's a whole kind of part of you who's just like, okay, well, that's not there anymore, right? But it's such a big part of your life. I actually lived in the Netherlands during the Brexit referendum. So I, I mean, I saw the campaign, but I missed a lot of it. And and I think to go back to what Mushtaq said, you know, that change in tone, I really noticed that. I came back in 2017 towards the end. When did this happen? Like I could, I could feel it and hear it. And it was such a sharp contrast. I think those of us who really worked on the ground, a lot of people in Bristol I know had already been subject to hate crime. But it also started to... I mean, I'm Swedish, but people started thinking I was Polish because I have a name that is not British. And I had friends who were kind of verbally abused, but Europeans, white Europeans as well. So it's kind of a combination of, you know, people who'd never had that kind of experience before. But you could also see it in some of the slight changes in policies when it came to housing benefits, that Europeans couldn't apply for certain things anymore. So it was really, it was a gradual thing that happened. And, and that was building up towards Brexit, really. 
over over quite a few years. But then, as Mishnak was saying, then it was almost like some people thought it was okay uh, to to verbalize it even more, and people who might not have done it. And some people, like especially politicians, who well, I guess wanted Brexit, they might say, "Oh well, you know, there's nothing that we said; it's how people interpreted." Um, but again, I mean, there was a real sense of panic. Can we still live in the UK? There weren't clear guidance around what it actually meant. Nobody knew. I mean, it consumed everything, the radio, the TV, the news for a few years. I just became Brexit sick. It just consumed everyone and everything in life. And so it was gradually, it was a drip, drip, drip feed, you know, and, and you could have predicted it. And we knew there was this hostility towards making things difficult, like housing and applying for benefits and, you know, sanctioning Oh, no, sorry, you're not British, you can't. What do you mean I'm not British? I mean, to say that to somebody, just because somebody doesn't have a red little book that says, you know, this is your nationality, doesn't mean I feel British at heart. You know, how rude to say that for somebody, you know, customer service point to say you're not British. It's, it's quite painful. We at Spam, we had like an open door. So any single parent who had a problem, they just kind of came to us. And we started to see more and more new citizens, single parents, and this was before Brexit, but they couldn't apply for income support anymore, although they had children under the age of five. So we literally had people who had newborn babies, and then they had to actively look for work. And if they failed their appointments, they were sanctioned. I remember accompanying two women who had been put on the work programme, but they had children that were under five, but they couldn't actually enter the office because those offices, children under five, were not allowed in there. But they had to go to their appointments and then they were told, well, you can't bring your children. And they were like, well, we have no childcare. And they were sanctioned. So we had to deal with a lot of issues like that already before Brexit. But it's the little things like putting women in harm's way. If a woman was fleeing domestic violence and in that kind of situation, imagine she couldn't turn anywhere. So it kind of made women stay in those relationships. And I think there was one case, Toby, I remember that you dealt with. There was a woman left in a little small flat. Her husband brought her over from Sweden or Norway or one of the Scandinavian countries and then left her. And she had nothing. She had no nothing paperwork anything there was another one that i remember really clearly because and again this thing about women if they hadn't worked and women that had come to the uk with a husband and then there was domestic violence you know they were kind of fleeing but then they couldn't leave the country because there was a court case and i remember one woman who she wasn't she was barred from leaving the country but she couldn't apply for benefits either because she wasn't entitled and in that particular case, I think even the asylum team or, you know, like social services kind of went in. But that was because obviously we advocated on her behalf. But there were so many people that, you know, they didn't have that opportunity because, of course, there's not a span everywhere in the UK where, where there were people who could help with those kind of issues. Feminist for me is much something much more practical. And it's about helping, supporting people when they need it and make sure that policies are not disadvantaging women, any women, whatever background they have. What would you both kind of suggest as a, a key takeaway for policymakers when dealing with this level of change in the future? What do policymakers need to do differently? I think for me, engaging with grassroots communities, I mean, that is key. And not just lip service, but really co-production and collaborating, I guess, is for me the key to it. It's about really transforming policies and services using evidence-based and grassroots kind of input and meeting communities halfway because we know that politicians have difficult jobs around this but it's about making sure that they close that gap of those different worlds. A lot of the politicians come from different backgrounds and in fact I don't know any Somali MP. I know of councillors but I don't know any members of parliament yet there's quite a large population in Bristol, in Birmingham, in London, in Sheffield and other in Cardiff and other areas. There's no one representing our voice and our experience within Westminster so therefore it's really important that they have our input and we create that knowledge together and those policies together and collaborate. It's about listening to those communities and you know giving that grassroots voice a real voice and putting that knowledge back into those communities and to be able to action that work themselves. 
I worked on the Life Chances project with Sue and Tove and we went to Westminster and I went to a briefing on uh, poverty where the Joseph Rowntree Foundation was. There was the MP who was, I guess, the chair for the all-party parliamentary group at that point. There was the elected member who was there. They listened to our voices and I was able to do something different for the first time. You know, I was able to really get my voice heard, which I've never done before. But also it left a huge amount of skills with me. It changed my life around. It gave me other opportunities of jobs, you know, that I could then use in another, to help me progress in my career. And those kind of impact that, you know, coming out of poverty, I guess, you know, and going into be, becoming a working class, it has huge ramifications on somebody. So allowing communities to have the opportunity to have those experiences, and that is really the key that uh, politicians have to listen to in communities. Do you think there are different channels of communication with those groups than what they currently they use at the moment? Absolutely. For example, like around gender violence, believe it or not, police go to community leaders or politicians go to community leaders. And who are they? Often men who don't represent the woman's voice. So it's very interesting that, you know, those systems are not in place. The actual grassroots voices are missing. For me, there's no platforms and mechanisms to even get the right people on board. Again, it's about having the agency as well. Not every woman will want to sit down with a politician or, you know, you need to have things in place. In SPAN, when we always had real good engagement, we had a safe space. There's so much, you know, you need to have cultural appropriate kind of and sensitive uh, approaches. We had, you know, uh, people who spoke the same language. We had food, build trust. We did storytelling. We used arts as a mode of communication. There's so many different approaches of engagement. Mm. There isn't just a single thing. And for each community and group is different. But for women in SPAN, and we often used to bring sometimes politicians or elected members or people who had an invested interest to meet with, with the women. Not everyone spoke, so we needed to facilitate it. And that facilitation was key. From the financial crash in 2008, and again, when I talk, you know, I say that there's been gradual change. Sometimes we feel that, oh, something just changed like that and it's very drastic. But when you worked on the ground and you saw I was responsible for the funding and the funding landscape changed and it became much more difficult for smaller grassroots organizations to actually keep running. Big organizations came in, they were scooping up contracts and that was enabled by government policy. I don't think that what the value in what an organization like SPAN could actually offer, not only to the women or, you know, the children, the people that came to our services and the few men, we did have a few men as well, but people who came to our services, but also what we could actually offer politicians and decision makers, because we were somehow that link between people who were really living in very marginalised and difficult position. and, And also when, I think increasingly when, the welfare reforms made people having to, to do a lot more. People became a lot busier. People didn't have the time to mobilise or, you know, do the kind of things that we were able to do before. It's still really important that somebody is kind of picking that up on their behalf and bring that to the policy makers, even if they can't do it themselves. Organisations like SPAN could because we were so close to people and they trusted us. Because we got, we had an opportunity to get to know each other in, in that safe space. Sometimes researchers also need people like those of us who were working on the ground and who were the gatekeepers. And if organisations like, like if the grassroots organisations that could build those bridges, if they are no longer there, who is going to build the bridge? It goes back to that whole multiculturalism concept and how, I guess, people say multiculturalism is failing. And I guess it's down to the definition of, you know, is multiculturalism the fact that in Indian takeaway or Chinese is the number one in the UK or, you know, the fact that, you know, or is multiculturalism really the fact that you celebrate diversity, you know, where communities are living in cohesive society side by side where people can share culture and multiculturalism I guess in this whole Brexit debate has become I mean that whole you know multiculturalism has failed in the UK actually it hasn't because you know I think it's really important to say and turn that back upside down on his head and say actually nobody really attempted to stop that 
in a, a strong way and really challenge that because the reality is there are people who live all over the world who are British and there are people who from all over the world who live in the UK. So multiculturalism actually as a world is actually a really important thing. And to say that that is failing, I mean, you know, that's that's just giving up on humanity, really. In Holland, I think things are very different. I mean, Holland is very upfront with um, its its history and its roots in the Dutch Antilles and the Suriname and, you know, the, the whole colonization and the fact that their roots and the ties that they have with those communities is very different to what's happened in the UK. For example, Windrush. It's how are we allowing this to happen? allowing politicians to create that narrative where is the scrutiny i mentioned that in the chapter that i feel like there's no one really holding anyone to accountable and i feel like for me i feel very let down so i have actually the three children two are british one is dutch she was born here in bristol she's 15 now my daughter you know um, i just managed to get my settled status but i had to do a separate application for her because it was just so complicated to do it all in one her father is not in the country it's just so difficult to sort it all out one of the obstacles that I faced and what took me so long is my date of birth issue and I mentioned that in the chapter I have XXXX in just a year imagine they couldn't link up all my DWP and tax and everything and I've been living here since 2000 they couldn't link it up because when I was inputting my date of birth I was putting X, 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 X in just a year, but they weren't allowing me to put 27th of March, which is what I use. It was really difficult. Coming back to what politicians can do differently, I think a lot of people who haven't had to deal with those kind of issues, like what Mushtaq is describing now, but the kind of complications of having moved or having come as a refugee, having had maybe the wrong date of birth, you know, whatever it is, you know, it might just be a name that is spelled in a different way, how that can just make your life so complicated and difficult. I cannot imagine some of the bureaucratic admin type hoops that people have to jump through. And other countries have their own rules, like, you know, in Holland, in the Netherlands, you can only have a Dutch passport, you can't have dual passports unless you were born with dual nationality as Mushtaq, I assume that you can't apply for British citizenship without giving up your Dutch citizenship. Yes, exactly. And that for me is absolutely awful. I'm not prepared to give up my Dutch citizenship. So for me, what Mm. was really direct action for me that really made me happy, it was challenged that children wouldn't have to pay the fee to apply for British citizen. Again, I have a child that's born here. She's 15. She's Dutch. I can't afford it, but I I still don't know what it means. Can I apply for it now? Will I still be charged? There's no information. And sometimes you're so busy, especially if you have language barriers, and you really need that information in black and white, accessible. People need to be told, you don't have to pay for the fee, go and apply. And this is where you apply. And this is how you apply. Because that court case was won now, but actually in a year's time, that can be overturned or the government can put things in place where they can start charging people again. If there's a window of opportunity, where do we get that information from? Because contacting, you know, the home office or the passport, it's not as easy and straightforward. This happened when people fled war. So my family, I don't have direct aunties and uncles here. I don't have my grandparents here. I don't have that privilege that people have that their mother can pick up the children from school twice a week. No, I don't have that. It's me against the world, me and my children against the world. That's how I feel. The only support system would be the friends that I've made, which is the family that I created for myself. Because the truth is, people came here without, you know, displaced. We are displaced communities who didn't come here with extended family. Those family that people do have are now going to be again displaced because of this. And the issue that Mushtaq is talking about, about having one child, because they changed the law. So after Mushtaq's daughter was born and my daughter, they changed the legislation, which then made it possible for our younger children to be British. And then what that means, that one child that, you know, that was born during a time where they could not be British. (laughs) Yeah, it's that thing of like adding another, when you were talking before about Know how communities were added, and I think it's just especially more disadvantaged communities that were already struggling, doing their best, 
and really trying to live a life is just adding another layer of stress, of trauma that people have to deal with, which is completely unnecessary. And at the end of the day, I don't think that people maybe realise that it's going to affect the whole society. It really does show how what effect policy has when it's translated into like practical consequences. And every time they close a door to a pathway or a mechanism to give you security, to give people what they need, every door that they close, like you say, has this kind of negative consequence. What's the biggest thing that I guess policymakers, but people just listening anyway, could do in the next Oh, yeah, 18 months that could help mitigate some of these impacts of Brexit on women. I mean, there's communities thinking that it's Brexit already happened. It's too late to apply. There's people thinking that, oh, I won't get it. Or there's COVID, the clock is on pause or something like that. So there's also people impacted because of COVID to apply for the settled status, for example. People are not going to make the deadline. And I tell you a funny thing, I actually got the evidence I want to laminate my piece of paper that I got from Child Benefit. I asked, I contacted Child Benefit for proof of Child Benefit to show them basically that I've been, you know, in receipt. And you know, when you apply for Child Benefit in this country, you always send the birth certificate. So they have the actual registered name of the child, the parent, everything. All three of my children, they came back with wrong spellings and wrong date of birth. How they did that? It wasn't even mixing it up with other children or whatever. It was literally spelling my daughter's name wrong than having one number different. It was almost like bullying on purpose. And guess how long I waited? I waited almost three months for that piece of paper. And now that that was last year, now that it's COVID, it might even take longer. So how people will make the date for the sixth of, uh, for the, for June 2021 to apply for their settled status, I don't understand. It needs to be delayed. It needs to be pushed back. The systems will take, you know, workforce is not in, in a full effect. And you have to wait for paperwork longer. You might not be able to go to your bank and ask for little things that before that they were able to do, like send you years of bank statements. Banks open 10 o'clock, close at 2. We're living in a pandemic. So for me, I think number one is delaying the, the closing date for people to apply. The, the only other thing I wanted to mention is that it's an inquiry. When something happens really bad, I mean, the Windrush had and inquiry and recommendations that come out of it. There might be a little bit of need of lessons learned because I think even though we've got a settled status, I've got mine now, I'm still waiting for my daughters, there's still impact on mm. families because at one point, some point, I'm going to have to choose and decide what do I do? Do I apply for British? And even if I wanted to, I don't have a date of birth. So I still am going to face yeah. to get politicians to have an inquiry into how Brexit impacted EU citizens and nationals in the UK. And also, I really think this whole thing about women who haven't worked, who might have been stay-at-home mums and become single parents, that's something that I, I would be part of that kind of inquiry. You know, to add to this more general inquiry, but it is also to, to try to mobilise and, and offer that kind of practical support, and that's more of a local. And I know that in Bristol there have been people that have tried to do that, but of course with COVID, everything much more complicated and that needs to be recognised. I think what all of this is showing is how complicated it is and they should know this. They had experience before of universal credit but it also shows some kind of disregard for human beings like a dehumanisation really and that's quite concerning. And it's like little things like but I can't get a mortgage because of data birth. I can't, I can't buy the house. So I'm going to have to wait until the children grow up and get, and get it themselves. In my lifetime, unless I get a date of birth, I wouldn't be able to have it. I hate traveling. I'm really embarrassed with people to travel with me as well because what happens is they will have to wait for me in customs to explain. They don't understand it. It was not very common. We had a session with a human rights lawyer and he said, you're denied an identity, he said, actually. You could take the Dutch government to court and get conversation and I'm happy to represent you if you want. But I was just too scared. I wouldn't dream of taking any government to court. But that is a huge beast to take on for a small person that I am. Never even dream of it, regardless of, I feel like that would cause me so much problems or they might even take it off me. You never know. They might even say, Do you know what, we'll leave you stateless. How about that? You know, even though I was offered that support, I didn't take it. But it was apparently you're denied an identity if you don't have a date of birth. And also the stress of having to do that, it's very easy for people to say, oh, just challenge it. The stress that was coming to your life from taking the Dutch government to court, 
Again, this is part of the work that we did in SPAN. It's about being resilient to that, being able to thrive in that environment. And I mean, even the race disparity or, you know, report that came out and said, UK is not racist, it's the best country for, you know, black people to live in. And like, you know, yeah, right. You know, and then and that it was down to our ambition or our kind of lack of ambition, I guess. And it's like, well, we live in a state of constant kind of fear and mental health is impacted and the way I explained to my children that the racism and so I said we're the chosen people you have to turn it into positive everything into positivity if you don't it will weigh you down me saying we're the chosen people it's like for me to turn it negative into positive you know it's not that I'm saying that we're superior or we're better than anybody else it's just that me trying to justify and explain in a positive way why we have it more difficult than other people Really, if I would say, you know, what feminist activism should be for me, it is about collective empowerment and it is about offering those kind of spaces where we can do this in practice, where we can just by being and by showing that everybody is worthy as a human being and everybody is welcome. By offering that kind of safe environment, you're much stronger together than you are on your own. Thank you both. That was an absolutely fascinating conversation. The United Kingdom is a union of four countries, and two of them voted to stay in the European Union during the 2016 referendum. We're seeing the fallout of that now in two very different contexts. In Northern Ireland, we've seen the Good Friday peace agreement threatened by the resurgence of violence and unrest. In Scotland, the question of independence is once again at the forefront of Scottish politics. What does this mean for women in Scotland and Northern Ireland? Hi, I'm Emma Rich, Director of Engender, which is a feminist policy advocacy organisation working in Scotland. Hi, I'm Lynn Carvel, Chair of the Northern Ireland Women's Budget Group and Chief Executive of Women's Tech, which is a training and education organisation for women in non-traditional skills based in North Belfast. So how did you both get involved in feminist activism and why is it so important to you? I guess um, I started at school um, advocating to get period products into the girls' loo instead of having to queue up at the office and ask the, the school secretary in front of people who'd forgotten their dinner money. And then uh, carried on, really. I volunteered at Rape Crisis alongside my first proper job. And then I guess my curiosity, my interest drew me further into feminist organisations and work. And the reason it's important to me, I think, is because women's lives are still so constrained by patriarchy. And so our freedom to create a more beautiful world really needs us to dismantle the interlocking oppressions of gender, race and class. I grew up in a in a very much a rural environment and went to uh, when I went to university, went to Belfast and uh, studied sociology and social policy and politics there. And it was during one of my social policy classes when we were learning about um, social welfare and the welfare state and how it was created. I just couldn't believe the way that women and men were treated differently in all of this and very much um, established on the basis of, of, of men and the head of household. And I was completely blown away by this. And from then, it just hasn't stopped. When welfare reform happened, I was absolutely and totally re-energised around how women were losing their incomes and, and still continue to do it. I always say you can't unknow what you know. So it does take up so much energy. But I love seeing the younger women coming along now and picking up on different strands, but picking it apart even further than what we did. And so still I'm learning. It's 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 fantastic. I've got two daughters and they, they have to be living in a society that's equal and doesn't discriminate against them just because they're girls. We have a long way to go. What's really important? about your book and your chapter is that it did discuss the devolved nations. You know, there's not been a lot of focus on, say, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland in our Brexit debate. And there's been a sh quite a uh, sharp show of ignorance from some of our government members about the devolved nations. What threats does Brexit pose for inclusive policy for women? I mean, gender mainstreaming is a really pretty radical idea that we should bring feminist analysis inside policymaking and legislating. And I think that speaks to exactly what Lynn was describing in terms of women just being at the margins of all of the decisions that are made about, about life. So everything public bodies should do uh, should take account of the distinct needs of women and girls and also consider our equality with men and boys. 
Uh, stepping outside of Europe means that our equality law and specifically the Equality Act 2010 and its public sector equality mainstreaming duty no longer have the backstop of European law. And so we're very concerned that that means um, that the Equality Act could potentially evaporate away, um, that the public sector equality duty, as limited as it is in its operations in England, Wales and Scotland, uh, could go. And that would mean public bodies having less accountability for not making decisions uh, that took account of women and girls' needs. And we're really concerned uh, about that regression. So we've been advocating for the incorporation of CEDAW and for other women's rights standards like the Istanbul Convention in order not to see women's rights roll further back. I'm tired often to hear my own voice saying this, but, but, but it's important for context. You know, Northern Ireland is different. I wish it wasn't, but it really, really is. Issues around gen- gender equality Anything to do with anything that is progressive or just trying to move us forward um, as a society has always um, come second to the constitutional issue. That is what Brexit has done in Northern Ireland. It's it's taken a while to get peace here. It's taken a while to get a devolved se- assembly. When Brexit happened, we didn't have an assembly. So we had... Um, civil servants who were who were speaking on our behalf and not political representatives, you can be absolutely sure that any kind of progression in terms of gender equality or issues that we needed to be addressed were not at the table at that. So the constitutional issue has been brought, brought very much to the fore. It was either going to be nationalist or unionist. It was always a zero-sum game. Being part of the European Union lifted everybody to another account to allow another identity. It wasn't nationality as such, but it allowed us to be above and just lift ourselves above the, the ground where it's nationalist or, or, or unionist. Once Brexit happened, that was removed. And we, as I said, we we're seeing the outworkings of that today. So women from urban areas have been unequivocal on how Brexit has the potential, the potential to reignite the conflict. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, we knew this. We knew this in 2016, and that's the bit that I don't understand. So today, my colleague Emma from Scotland has just informed me from Scotland that our first minister is resigned or will be resigning at the end of May. And that is very much as a consequence of Brexit and the protocol. So everything, everything we thought was going to happen is happening. But all of this, most unfortunately, just um, overrides anything you know to do with gender equality or mainstreaming or, or any of those issues. And I know that women have been heavily involved in like the peace process and in, in reparations, in peace building, perhaps, yeah. Peace building, absolutely. All of our work, all of our work is, is, is that always forms a part of it. You, you can see where everybody's just put back, well, we've got COVID, a pandemic, never mind everything else. So everybody's, women are back in the house. So who, back in their homes, back at the kitchen sinks, back caring. Where are our voices? It's men who are um, putting forward their views on how best to move forward, which means we're moving backwards. I think, Helen, you alluded to the fact that Westminster is often quite uh, blind when it comes to considering the needs of devolved nations. I think it's been particularly shocking to witness from Scotland just how much a lack of consideration has been given to the situation in Northern Ireland and the questions around the border. I think there's been a real downplaying of those by Westminster politicians, and I think that's placed women at real risk of harm, and we're now seeing some of the results of that imperviousness and willful turning away in uh, the consequences this summer for women and girls. Yeah, I, I I can't get over how careless we have been with Northern Ireland. It's very much an afterthought. You know, I, I do I do think that. And it makes me think, what you're saying there makes me think about, you know, because I still haven't got my head around how Brexit actually happened in the first place. People with nothing and with nothing to lose voted for Brexit. Um, and I, I will fully, I fully will contend that there were lies told and all of that. But you know that the issue here in Northern Ireland is there are many, many people with nothing to lose. There's just very high levels of disadvantage because we've never normalised as a society, and the money isn't flowing into communities the way that it should be to build people up. And there is an absolute leadership vacuum, and I, I also would contend that. So, it's recipe for a disaster. In the chapter, you talk about the rural women's voice, the impressive work of the rural women's group in in, um, bringing that voice to to kind of Brexit influencers and decision makers. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Uh, During those, I I think that the dark days of having no government here and Brexit happening to us, the Democratic Unionist Party were our only MPs in Westminster. And there was one sole voice 
Northern Ireland actually voted to remain in the European Union, who was Lady Sylvia Herman, who was the only voice in Westminster to, to say something different than leave and this kind of pursuance of a, of a hard Brexit. And in the midst of all this, women's organisations really came to the fore. I mean, we never stopped. So the Northern Ireland Rural, Rural Women's Network Absolutely, totally under um, resourced and has been for years and a, a small part time team. I mean, I've been speaking to Louise, who is the director there. You know, we were talking about how she got the strength, I think, and the courage to actually to speak on behalf of her women's system, a membership organization. So that's what we do. And we got the mandate from our groups. The border area is rural. The border area is impoverished and it's rural. When she met with Michael Barnier back in the day, I don't know, maybe 2016, 2017, and the first words he said was, I'm so glad to meet some women because everywhere I go, it's men. And that's the truth. And it's still the truth because all the different committees that are set up now, I mean, you will see very, very few women involved in this. So the strength came from her members and the strength came from people's lived lives and lived realities and not some constitutional question that's up here. So they were very, very powerful and had a very, very powerful voice. And other issues that happened during that time, you know, there's been an ongoing struggle for reproductive rights to be realised in Northern Ireland. And it, believe it or not, not not dissimilar to Brexit, has been a political football between Westminster and the DUP for many, many years. And so Westminster legislated for abortion in Northern Ireland. Now, believe it or not, we still do not have it. And it still is not realised. But there's an on, there's an ongoing fight. The, the grassroots organisation around that was Absolutely incredible. And again, with the help from across five nations, equal marriage was the other thing that that passed. There were little rays of sunshine that in the chaos and the madness that grassroots groups were fighting for and and mobilizing on the ground. I'm smiling because I remember the joy on both those occasions. I think that's a really good point about there being less women in the room in Northern Ireland, because, you know, in in Scotland, actually, we've got, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and, and, and quite a lot of Scottish MPs is that right Emma? Yeah certainly there's more um, there's more equal representation in the parliament I would describe it as a really different polity than Northern Ireland I think there's there's not that resistance to women's equality and rights that, that there there seems to be baked into almost how um, the Northern Irish uh, parliament and government work and operate um, so we see much more enthusiasm for women's equality and rights but obviously less space to act than the Westminster um, government and parliament. And so um, the devolution question is always really important in terms of how things happen and how that energy of the grassroots that Lynn was describing translates into law and policy. I think something I wonder and how much Brexit changed people's opinions on the referendum and what they'd voted previously. I mean, I think there are women on all all on all points of the the scale from being very enthusiastic about independence to wanting to stay within the United Kingdom. So I think there isn't one single feminist view on that. I think women's equality and rights is possible under any constitutional arrangement. Uh, I guess what the the role is for organisations like Engender is to respond to what the political reality is and make the best possible arguments for women's equality and rights, whatever is happening with the constitution. I think the polling shows lots of different groups feeling different ways. So for some people, Brexit made them much more enthusiastic about independence. But one of the things we were told during the referendum campaign was that independence would mean leaving Europe. And so they are kind of questions that are bound up together. As I think is the the kind of question for me on the extent to which women were involved in the two campaigns in completely different ways. So in terms of Brexit, very few women engaged with the discussion, uh, which actually wasn't much of a discussion in Scotland because all of the political parties here backed um, remaining in Europe, uh, even the Scottish Conservatives. So um, it was quite different than the independence campaign, which saw women really energised to take part in the political discussion for those years that led up to the vote. Yeah, I think something that was missing a lot from the discussion anywhere was the potential for this to kind of erode the Human Rights Act and our our commitment to human rights. And I know that that's something the EU is very concerned about. Clearly, you know, none of those discussions took place. I don't remember any discussions around anything that actually was true or mattered. It was take back control, which was just three words and there was nothing else. 
without having a space to discuss. So this shut down discussion. So never mind the things that actually matter to citizens across the board. There is, you know, on the back of them, it says like for me and my understanding, you know, and I know I'm coming from the Northern Ireland context, but when Brexit happened, in my completely personal view, it was the end of the union. When it happened, it's one of the first things I thought of. I was like, you know, you can go from here to here to here to here, and it's the end of the union. People here, so people just want Brexit and want to take back control and think they'll be closer to Britain. But really, that was English nationalism. And so here, people who are middle of the road, and there are so many people, we live in a beautiful country. We are so lucky. Our quality of life isn't that bad. I mean, it's, you know, we've horrendous things that we've put up with and still do put up with. But the possibilities are endless. I mean, it, it could be brilliant. And people know that here. So we could be together. But what Brexit did was remove that. And now people are like, do you know what? I'm going to be treated better if economically we have a united island, at least a lot of some way. So people who weren't even, would even countenance that, not really, and wanted to do something here, have been pushed in that direction. That's really interesting because it's not discussed, like that's not even a consideration, I think, for... For Westminster. This is a question for both of you. What do you think the most important things women in the devolved nations can do over the next one to two years that can hopefully mitigate some of the impact of Brexit on women? I mean, I've, I think the most important thing we can always do is work together um, and keep our eyes on the things that are important to us, justice, uh, equal pay, freedom from violence, um, all of the all of the issues that feminist women have worked together for forever to advance a cause of. I think specifically, we are really looking at the incorporation of CEDAW in Scotland, which is one of the things which um, the previous Scottish government has committed to. So once the election has passed, we'll see if that's likely to be a, a prospect for the for the new Scottish Parliament. We've seen women really shoved out of the room during the Brexit discussion. And so we would want to see women included in all of the decision making that is happening. And I think some of the issues that are going to be quite new to us as we navigate the post-Brexit world are things about trade. How will women be advanced or not by trade and the answers to those questions? Climate justice is obviously massively on the agenda with uh, COP26 taking place this year in Scotland. And so how can women be involved in the international conversations that are happening around Britain's place in the world and what that looks like that will ultimately have an impact on women's lives and safety and our economic stability and the economic success of our communities and families. I would say, and there are no silver linings to Brexit as far as I'm concerned, but if there was to be one, it is. it has been greater collaboration, I think, across the four nations and, and ind- indeed the five nations. We've kind of moved out of, you know, our, our kind of devolved, the devolved really, really matters, but that kind of working together and collaborating has been important and has a better place than what it had before. Unfortunately, and what we had expected, um, we are going to have to deal with violence again. I'd be absolutely sure it's not over. I'd say we have a very difficult summer in front of us and maybe even more long term than that. So when that happens, it's women in the communities that really, really try and pull this back. A lot of effort is going to be in local communities trying to deal with that. So it's a little bit of a different context um, for us. But at the same time, the other women's organisations that are working at a kind of a strategic level. Um, I think that collaboration um, around, there's a lot of work happening around sexual harassment, violence against women, equal pay and women's representation and, and having their voices heard. So all of that, there is no doubt that all of that will continue. What factors should have been considered um, around the devolved nations that were actually um, ignored in the Brexit process? I mean, I think uh, what Westminster civil servants and ministers and politicians often seem surprised by is that devolution exists at all. And so we are constantly having to explain, actually, no, we've got a distinct legal system, a distinct education system, a distinct health service, and all of the policy and laws around these things are made in Scotland. So actually, if you're not thinking about the distinctness of Scotland, you're really not designing a kind of political process that Scotland can readily take part in. We found that just didn't happen through the Brexit campaign. It was kind of treated as though the the experience across the UK was homogenous. It kind of reflected the way that women are often not considered as a distinct um, group of people that needs to be thought about and the distinctness of the needs need to be thought about as part of any decision making. And this is not an unfamiliar experience in Scotland, but it really, I think, it really 
was perhaps reflected in how little Scotland saw itself in the Brexit conversation and ultimately the result of the vote in which Scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay in um, the European Union. And really the Brexit that we have experienced has been one that has happened without our democratic support for it. Well, I mean, it's probably the crux of the of the of the whole thing, really, isn't it? About about what's not being considered. So, first of all, uh, we, you know, in Northern Ireland, have a very very fragile and young peace process, and there's always a simmering kind of underlying threat of violence or something, you know, that that that's just all that's just always there. So that was absolutely and completely ignored, and so like and an international treaty, the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. That we have the only like land border with another jurisdiction that's in the European Union, I, I don't understand how this could be ignored. To be quite honest, so I think it it was maybe ignored, but but certainly willfully ignored. All it does is put, and all it has done is put pressure on people living here, on women and their families. But devolution is so important, and devolution has been. So important to the nations in various different ways. And that's why I really enjoy the, the collaboration to see how things are, are panning out across the different jurisdictions. But what we do see post-Brexit is a real centralization. And that's well, certainly that's what I'm saying in terms of policies and control and more than anything else, money. England can't survive by itself. It really, really can't. So the purse strings are being, the money's been pulled back. I'm interested to see what happens with EU structural funds and, and everything else. But all of this has been, it might be different in Scotland and Wales, but it's certainly been centralised and it has not been devolved to Northern Ireland. It will be interesting to see how this how this actually pans out to reduce and roll back on devolution and where that leads every, everything to. But I mean, Northern Ireland, was it wasn't just ignored. It, I actually think it's criminal what happened. It's absolutely criminal. And as I said, the fallout is still happening and will continue to happen. Obviously, there's a there's a difference between an international treaty in the form of the Good Friday Agreement being ignored and like an actual post-conflict situation being ignored compared to like Scotland's situation. So like what happened in Northern Ireland was an absolute disgrace and someone should be in front of a tribunal. The kind of democratic exclusion of Scotland, I would not at all compare with the situation in Northern Ireland where a fragile peace process was ignored um, the, the the context of the, the Good Friday Agreement was completely ignored. The promises to Northern Ireland that have gone on for de- been ignored for decades around um, the Northern Irish Bill of Human Rights ignored again. Um, and I think that that is far more disturbing to me than the, the situation with Scotland. Brexit was good for no one. I absolutely take on your sister solidarity. And that's why the collaboration and our work, you know, that lifts us out of our devolved, which is important, but lifts us out of our devolved piece is very, very important. Yeah, I think if if anything, um, the experience of writing the book and reflecting on, on life post-Brexit compels us to work even more closely together across the UK and with Ireland also, the five nations, um, women coming together have always made the world better. And I think on this, we can do the same. You know, I think we have put a huge burden on our young people and the people who are coming after us. But I also really, really hope they have the courage to do something about this and and to fix things and to to change things. I mean, when, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, when we were young and maybe had more energy in that activism kind of role, I mean, that's what we did. You know, the other part of what Brexit has done in Northern Ireland is what Brexit has done to our young people, stopping them going to Europe for education and travel and all sorts of different things. It's an absolute shame and disgrace. But I really hope that they can pick up this mantle and really and and run with it and change it. And I think that, you know, I just wish them courage. I really do. Thank you, both of you. You'll find the link to the activist organisations and to the book below in the show notes. Join us again next episode where we continue looking at the implications of Brexit for women and women's rights.